The views expressed on this program are not necessarily those of KUCI, its management, the UC Board of Regents, or busy rescue teams in our public parks. Good morning, I'm your host, Claudia Shamba, welcoming you to the June 22nd, 2021 edition of Ask a Leader. Today we start with California Redistricting Commissioners Linda Akutagawa and Trina Turner returning to this program with the latest of their dog and pony shows. I'm going to give you lots of dates and websites so that you can follow and contribute as the maps are being drawn. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the show. Returning from their March 23rd appearance are California Redistricting Commissioners Linda Akutagawa of Huntington Beach and Trina Turner of Stockton, two of the 14 commissioners on the Redistricting Commission, appointed last summer and now in full swing with their community outreach duties toward mapping both federal and state legislative districts throughout California. From Huntington Beach is Commissioner Linda Akutagawa, President and CEO of Leadership Action for Asian Pacifics. She's been an entrepreneur for over 25 years and beneficiary of LEAPS Leadership Programming. Commissioner Akutagawa is the chair of the Alliance for Board Diversity and an appointed member of the California Department of Insurance Diversity Task Force. She is also a member of the Asian Asian American Institute Advisory Board at California State University at LA, as well as board member of Asian Pacific Planning and Policy Council. She's a nationally recognized speaker and facilitator on leadership, diversity, equity, and inclusion, nonprofits, and board governance. She is registered as no party preference. Our other guest is Commissioner Trina Turner. Pastor Trina Turner is the executive director of the Faith in the Valley, a multicultural, multi-faith community organizing network in the San Joaquin Central Valley. Faith in the Valley builds power among historically excluded communities to act together for systems and policy change for racial, economic, and environmental equity. She's active with her local ministry as an ordained minister and member of the pastoral staff. She spent 25 years in management with the telecommunications industry, managing call centers and supporting internal sales and neighbor teams to drive effective business communications. She is registered with the Democratic Party. Commissioner Akutagawa comes to us today from her home and her office in Huntington Beach and Commissioner Turner today comes from her home in Stockton. Welcome back to Ask a Leader Commissioners. Thank you. Thanks Thanks for having us. That is Commissioners Turner and Akutagawa in that order we hear them. We are taping this interview on June 18th. Some of the meetings will be taking place prior to broadcast Tuesday morning, but fear not all, we will cover all that applies to the ongoing process and later meeting dates in Orange County. So I'd like to start with some of the, the criteria that stand out for you that are the ones that seem to be the ones you're repeating the most, the criteria you're using for drawing these districts. Well, we have a very mandated set of criteria that we must follow as a commission, and it's in a very particular order. So if you'll indulge me, I'd like to just speak about all six. Please about- do. Okay, great. So when we go about drawing the new electoral district maps, 
first and foremost, districts must be of equal population. So, you know, roughly every, every district has to have an equal number of people in each district to comply with the U.S. Constitution. So this is a federally, you know, mandated, U.S. constitutionally mandated requirement. Number two, districts must comply with the Voting Rights Act to ensure that minorities have an equal opportunity to elect representatives of their choice. And I think this may be an interesting distinction and we could, if you feel like, you know, um, we need to have a conversation, we could. But I I also want to note that minorities does not refer to just people of color in this particular case or some uh, or another diverse constituency. It could be a minority community in that particular region. And Mm -hmm. so hopefully that that makes sense. Absolutely. I'm so glad you brought that distinction out. Yeah, I think that that's a really important distinction that folks should also be thinking about. Number three, districts must be drawn contiguously so that all parts of the district are connected to each other. So, for example, I mean, I, you know, living in Huntington Beach, I give the example of if my district is Huntington Beach and then it skips over Fountain Valley and maybe parts of Westminster and then decides, okay, you know, it's going to instead include Newport Beach and Irvine, that is not a proper district because they're not touching each other. They're not contiguous. Number four, districts must minimize the division of cities, counties, neighborhoods, and communities of interest to the extent possible. So one of the interesting things is when you think about if you live in a county or if you're in a a distinct or unique neighborhood that shares common interests and so therefore you're a community of interest, The last thing that many people are going to want is to have a community split into two different districts. And one of the testimonies that we've, or several testimonies that we heard in our very first public input meeting last week was that some people called in saying, we live in this county, but there's this small sliver of our county that is, you know, a separate district. And as much as possible, we need to minimize that division of cities, counties, neighborhoods, and communities of interest. Number five is Districts should be geographically compact such that nearby areas of the population are not bypassed for a more distant population. And so this requirement refers to the density of the district, not the shape. And so census blocks cannot be split in half to be able to meet the needs. So the way I would interpret this is as much as possible, when you think about an elected representative, It's not ideal if they have to drive three hours from one end of their district to the other. And so as much as possible, the idea is that we need to be looking at trying to keep districts as geographically compact as possible. And then number six is nesting. So where practicable, each Senate district should be comprised of two complete and adjacent assembly districts and board of equalization districts should be comprised of 10 complete and adjacent state Senate districts. Okay. That's interesting. And, and so are you trying, is the goal to try to make some of these districts line up to like as close as you can get to having the California State Senate District fit within the California Federal Congressional District to some extent? Is there a mind to that a little bit? 
In terms of the requirements that we need to follow, it's really the nesting really refers to the, the California, list. yeah, the California districts, the legislative districts. So the Senate, you know, should be comprised of the two complete and adjacent assembly, and the Board of Equalization should be comprised of 10 complete and adjacent state Senate districts. And the Board of Equalization in the already held community of interest meetings, are people speaking to that, or is this an opportunity for the redistricting commission to remind everybody? These are the districts also that are being drawn by you. Yes. Because that Board of Equalization is partly, it has to do with school districts. That, that's their jurisdiction for what classification school districts have, for, among other things. Yes, and so far we're not seeing a lot of testimony that is actually naming and speaking to what you're speaking of now, the Board of Equalization, but it is equally as important. We definitely want to hear from Californians as far as what their idea of how that division should be made as well. And in using our community of interest tool, even if they speak to it there, those can be printed out and taken into school districts as well. So they can use the same effort and work that they're sending us at a state level and be able to also submit it into some of their local jurisdictions. And then there is a list of that you would on your website. I'm going to remind people that several times and it'll be in the podcast summary. We draw the lines.org. That's where all of this is spelled out and where people can find out when the meetings are taking place and what's the agenda for that. And I would just like to give a little a quick lip service to how contributors can prepare those eight items that you have on the website. That there's one, the, the last one, the last number eight is, a, I think, a, a big interest to me that people can think about in getting ready to show up at your virtual meetings. One of the things that we want people to think about is what just is what's important for them. Yes. Of course, the commission, you know, will have a lot. We're able to obtain city and county information for different jurisdictions, but your specificity of your neighborhoods and your communities of interest, we have to get directly from you. So in preparing to come in, we want you to come in with everything that is near and dear to your heart, be it where you live why it's important, start thinking, I'd like for my community to be kept whole and I'd like to be in a district with, and then begin to name who you want to be in the district with in your surrounding areas. You can perhaps use geographical descriptions. You can talk about the types of things that go on in your neighborhood that makes it something that is so special that you want to be kept together. And it's important to say who you do not want to be in a district with. And so we What's an should- example of that, if I can ask? Mm-hmm, absolutely. So in, um, and I won't be able to give the Southern California, uh, because I am a Valley girl, Central Valley in California. <laughs> but here, for example, if in Fort Stockton, for example, where I, I live would be a great example, someone could call in and this is just an example, but someone could call in and say, you know, I live in the northern part of Stockton. And here we are still close to some agriculture. There are also brand new homes and families. It's important for us that we, our school district, you know, we want to be kept together in and name 
various streets. But by the same token, we also are right up against maybe say, um, I'm trying not to say specific names, but you know, there's a different neighborhood that is pretty close, but they have maybe a different income bracket than the homes here. We think our homes are nice, but we don't want to be in a district with these others that in our opinion seem to have been getting a preferential treatment. And we think our voices would be muted and drowned out if we're within that community. Maybe you're in a community that you're just now getting people to be civically engaged and to show up, but they've not yet developed that muscle that would be able to do that on a repetitive basis. And you're concerned about having those brand new fledgling voices drowned out by people that always participate in the process. So you're like, we want to have a say, we want to be included in this area, but don't yet, don't put us with this other area because we think their interests are different than ours. And we think that they may show up at a different rate than what these individuals will, and we won't have the proper representation. This is the time to say that. We will use all of the criteria to make the final decisions, but as far as what's going on in your neighborhoods, as whether or not if you feel that your voices are being heard, we won't know that level of detail unless people call in and tell us about it. Well, this actually begs the question whether people are bringing the Melorus districts that increment beyond what they're paying in California real property taxes. Are, are the Melorus districts a thing yet, or they will be a thing? I've not heard it as a thing at the statewide level just yet. Commissioner Kutgawa, have you paid attention to Melorus at all? I have not. And I, yeah, I have not heard anything from any of the testimonies that we've received, nor have I heard it referred to in terms of any concerns so far that we've heard from public comment. Um, Mm -hmm. And Claudia, I I don't know if it might help. I was just thinking about, you know, I could also provide perhaps some Southern California examples, specifically Orange County. One example would be like, if you think about South County and if you're down in San Clemente and let's say you're from that area, um, you know, someone may call in and say, hey, you know, we want to make sure that our district is our, our particular city or our region, which could be South County area, which could be, you know, San Clemente, San Juan, Mission Viejo. And by the way, we don't want to be combined with San Diego County, like North County and be in with like Camp Pendleton and Oceanside because we're different from, you know, in Oceanside, we, we don't shop, we don't, you know, other than maybe driving through Camp Pendleton down the five to go to San Diego, we don't have anything in common with the residents in that district. If we need to, we would rather be combined with people who are going more, let's just say a little bit more east into like going towards like Temecula or or the Rancho area. That's one example. Another example could be like, let's say if you're in Irvine, do you go south going towards like uh, Laguna and Aliso, Mission Viejo, or do you go a little bit more inland? And some people who might call from Irvine would say, hey, we want to make sure that we're remained aligned down the five corridor towards going towards the, you know, Tustin and maybe like Laguna Hills, Mission Viejo area. We don't want to go north in towards like Santa Ana along the those lines because we don't, again, we don't have similar interests and and we feel that we would be better represented if we are in a district that shares common interests in a whole versus um, perhaps being in a district where they're they're less less aligned. Are charter schools a thing? 
where they're located or their catch, maybe they're not geographically sort of situated. They're drawing on different sorts of people who are enrolling there, but is, has that come up at all yet? Where they're we, up inside we districts? Haven't, we haven't, but you know, those kind of, I would call landmarks could be a place of reference by which, you know, someone may want to call in and say, I live in a neighborhood that is next to the charter school. I want to make sure that, and, and many of my neighbors also support the charter school. We want to make sure that we all remain, you know, within a certain mile radius. We want to make sure that we will be all in the same district because then our interests around education will be kept intact. It may not be that they have an opinion of, we want to be with this, this city, this county, but we want to make sure that our particular region, which may be surrounding the charter school, will remain intact. You know, another example could be, again, you know, the University, UC Irvine, both the university, but also the neighborhoods that surround it may feel like our interests are both aligned and it's integrated with the interests of the university. And we, we want to make sure that we remain in one intact district versus maybe split up into multiple or even two districts. Mm. The one piece I wanted to add to that, thank you, uh, Commissioner Kurkawa. One of the other pieces, though, in the descriptor, what I think we're, we're going to really have to determine what we'll do with is we have a lot of testimony that's calling in and they're referencing current districts. And that may not be as helpful. For example, someone may call and say, I'm currently in, um, you know, Assembly District 45 and I want you to keep us with we want to be close or we want to be considered as this district 45 or 46. Well, we know that districts are going to change. And so referring to district numbers and saying, I want to be close or consider me in this particular area may not be as helpful because those 2010 districts are going away. We're basically redrawing brand new lines. And so I did notice in some of the testimony that was coming forth so far, people were making reference to district numbers. Um, and I think what would definitely continue to be helpful is those geographic markers more so than the reference to districts. Sounds like a it's a broken line to sort of say, to indicate this is a shifting kind of a, a geography there. I, I, yeah, that is, that is what is so elaborate and that it didn't help that you had the census data rolling out later. So it's a, there's a, <laughs> so much educating to have happen here. So for those of you who've just joined us, you're listening to Ask a Leader. My guests are California Citizens Redistricting Commissioners, Linda Akutagawa of Huntington Beach and Trina Turner from Stockton. We draw the lines.org is the essential website for California residents. We're talking not just citizens, we're talking about constituents in the broadest construct here. So I know there's a lot more details about what we're asking people to prepare for, and I want to direct them to that website so we can go into some of the schedule coming up on July 8th is going to be the next Zone J meeting, virtual meeting for Orange County people, and you are going to be offering Vietnamese and Korean upon request. Everybody's, every meeting, every virtual meeting has a sign language professional. So we'll, we'll go through that list. July 24th is another Orange County virtual meeting with Chinese and Mandarin available upon request. And there will be more meetings 
statewide for, uh, it's coming in August and in September to wrap all this up. So how are those virtual meetings working out for everybody? Are you noticing perhaps that if there's data from the 2010 mapping process, if you're seeing higher numbers of participation because they're virtual? I think right now, I think that we're starting out a little bit slower than we anticipated. And I, we fully believe and expect that it's going to pick up. But in addition to the dates that she just talked about, Claudia, we want to also encourage people. There is a statewide public input meeting that's coming up on tomorrow, on the 19th. And even though it's not specific to just or uh, Orange County, it is for the entire state. And we have put in appointment systems so that when any of the dates that you see, if it's a date that you're available, we want to encourage you to call in and share your public input with us. Um, the meeting, it's been rich, it's been rewarding. We've put a lot of time and effort into ensuring that the meetings, because they're virtual, still has a feel of them being right in the room with us as commissioners. And we've set a system up where they can even show their video so that we can see them as they're making their testimony, which has been very, very important for us to kind of get a feel for where their heart is and what they're talking about. Of course, our line drawers put up on on the screen for all to see the areas that they're speaking of and then they're able to drill down to different streets and what have you. Um, the testimony has been rich. We're really excited about what we're beginning to hear. However, it has been slower. We've had time periods where there are just more vacancies where we're waiting for Californians to call in and give us that vital information that we need. And so we're um, trying to do a, an even better job with public, um, you know, this radio station will help. We're trying to make sure we're doing outreach so that people are aware of all of the dates that we have available and so that they are participating and showing up in those spots. So we are now taping this on the 18th. The broadcast will be on the 22nd next week. So that's why it's so important for listeners to go to We Draw the Line so they can see when all of the meetings are there so they can come there. And I, I don't know if there's Zoom exhaustion or if people are just sort of like put, they're just trying to figure out how they're gonna re-enter the world as in the, the before times as they're called. But so we'll try to do our best. We certainly have on our radio station website, on our carousel, the revolving announcements of interest. And we've got, the redistricting commission's business there and the, with the website available. So we'll, we'll get, we'll try to do that. And if there's another opportunity, if you ladies want to return later in the summer, let's do this again, but there's with more. But so I do want to ask though about, is it palpable when constituents do offer their community, present the community, how, how palpable is it when constituents have been heard? And what does that sound like? I think for me, I, I mean, I'll just start out. And I think, you know, it's going to vary from person to person. But what's really palpable is just the just how compelling the testimonies are. And no matter how it's delivered, I think it, it's really clear that the fact that Californians have taken the time out to call and share with us what they believe is their communities of interest. I think that in itself is, I think, just really one, both really interesting and it's really exciting. And I mean, I think it's clear 
there are some people who are extremely passionate about it and they they just really can't wait to tell us about their community and want us to really understand their communities. And so I think that those are, I mean, obviously, I mean, I think those are the kinds of testimonies that make it really, really make this work really interesting and alive. Yeah. And, and, and definitely worthwhile. I mean, we're getting also written testimony too. And I do want to also put a plug in for our communities of interest mapping tool, which is at drawmycacommunity.org. And so even though Commissioner Turner mentioned that we're, we're not getting quite as many call-ins as we thought we would, maybe part of it is because people are submitting their testimonies online and you could draw your map for us. And, but, you know, just really whatever method somebody wants to use, I would just really encourage, please, please consider and call in, write in, tell us about your communities of interest, mm-hmm. even better I'm telling people just listen to the test, the public input meetings. Oh, and, yes. And yes. I feel like people will just be inspired, even if you're not sure what you would say. You know, I think once you start hearing and it's all different, there's no one right or wrong way. But once you hear it, I think people will be inspired to, to tell us more. I think I, I let's agree. Just get people there. It's kind <laughs> yeah. of contagious, right? One person yeah. contributes, the next one has to. I think it's definitely contagious. And I wanted to say and encourage those that are listening. Yes, for some, it is palpable. It's intense. They're excited. And and it's also, it could be a frightening just kind of step to make, to call into commissioners Mm -hmm. virtually and give information. Maybe you've not called before. But what I want to say is that we are there, leaned in. We recognize that we cannot do this work without Californians. So Mm -hmm. we want to encourage those, even if you're feeling timid about it, call in. We got you. We're there listening and we're leaned in and we want to help you feel comfortable about giving your public input for what's important for you. So I wanted to just also say that by way of encouraging maybe first time people that are calling in. You don't have to be professional at this. You might come in kind of shaking in your boots, but call us like uh, you've said so many different times, submit online, submit through email, but just don't stand down. We want to hear from you, however you got to get it out. But we need to give the call-in number right now. Listeners, pencils down on the paper. It's area code 877-853-5247. So that's how to call in if you're not going to go online and follow and contribute. So I don't know, I mean, are there, do they get, are there kind of conversations between people or some, somebody will say something with a certain community identity and somebody says, oh, wait a minute. And they sort of tweak what they just heard. Is that, is there an internal kind of discussion going on at a forum? I've not heard so much, um, I've thought of it so much as an internal conversation going back. There has been testimony that's given and then a little bit later, maybe there's testimony that could be counter or opposite, you know, okay. a, a differing opinion. And so we will hear all of that and work through using our criteria. We'll have to work through that at some point. But yes, sometimes it could be a different thought process about what should happen. Commissioner Akutagawa, do you have something to say to to that kind of a contribution? No, I thought I think uh, what Commissioner Turner said is is spot on, and it's. Uh, I guess I'll just say as much as we would like to be able to engage in that back and forth conversation, you know, we're here 
to listen to the testimonies of Californians. And we wanna make sure that we hear from as many Californians that are willing and able to provide testimony during the public input meetings. And Claudia, if you don't mind, if I can also give a, a different kind of plug for the meetings. So the first meeting that will be focused on Orange County will be on July 8th. And as you mentioned, uh, we will have uh, subsequent meetings for Orange County on July 24th. And I also want to note, it's it's not yet on our website schedule, but we will also have a third one on September 1st. But I do also want to just note two things. One, any public input meeting, even if it is focused on a different region, any public input meeting is possible for anyone to call in and give us input, even if it's not necessarily on that particular region that it may be focused on. So, so -hmm. that's one thing. So, you know, let's just say, Hey, you know, someone says July 8th, July 24th or September 1st doesn't work for me to give testimony, but this other date does, and it's for a different region, but it is an input meeting. Can I call in? The answer is absolutely yes. The second thing, the second thing I also want to note is that we have time set aside for Vietnamese and Korean translation on the July 8th meeting. And so what we need is, is if someone would prefer to give testimony in one of those languages and they're more comfortable doing so, please send a request or ask a family member or a friend to send a request to us so that we can arrange for the translation. They will not automatically be there within, I believe, five days. If we have no requests, then we will, we, while we'll leave some time set aside for interpretation, we may not have that interpreter available if we don't have the request in advance. And so related to that, even if you don't see a language that is listed, anyone can request interpretation in any language for any of the upcoming meetings. So for example, if somebody needs Spanish translation at that July 8th meeting, we will arrange for Spanish interpretation. In one of the later meetings after this this interview airs, if somebody needs translation or interpretation for one of the upcoming input meetings, let's say, for example, I'll just use Orange County, I'll I'll focus on Orange County. Let's say, you know, someone needs Arabic interpretation because we do have Little Arabia in Orange County. Or Farsi, I I have to say. Yeah, Yeah, or Farsi, or or even, I would even note a Pacific Islander language. I know that we have a Marshallese community. We have a Chamorro community in Orange County. If there's a need for interpretation in one of those languages, if an individual can make a request within five days in advance, then we will make every effort to find an interpreter, but we need at least five days notice to go about looking for the interpreter. Okay, that's helpful. Well, while you're all mapping, the Board of Supervisors are throughout the whole state, they're mapping too, but I I have to tell you, you're, you're providing a very transparent model that makes Orange County look a little opaque. We don't really know we don't really know how much outreach that'll be. We don't know, there, there's no dates that are set. It's sort of, it's coming. <laughs> I mean, it was like a press release to all of us that we received, I believe at 
it was the end of last week. So it will present its updated plan. And so it's sort of the stuff is sort of dangling out there. So it's, you are the standard. So I'm just wondering as we're sort of closing, if that's possible to fit one more question in about are other states interacting with you? Some of them we can see are in a huge stampede to really put things down on the ground, codify new voting laws, et cetera, et cetera. So are people watching as the second iteration of districting and independent districting is taking place? Are other states trying to get more information for how independent commissions do this work? I believe other states are closely watching. The evidence that we have of that are just articles that come out that make reference to the work um, that we're doing at the California Citizens Redistricting Commission. And we've had also um, a caller or two that's called in from other states. And so um, we do believe that we're being closely watched and which is a good thing because we believe that independent redistricting is the right thing to happen. And so the more states that lean in long enough to make that happen in their own states, I think the better. So I, I, I think so. Commissioner Akutagawa, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I would absolutely agree. And in fact, I would also note that other states that don't yet have independent redistricting commissions, but are considering it, have also reached out. I do recall early on, New Mexico reached out to us and one of our commissioners, fellow commissioners, went on to a public meeting with them to discuss the work that we're doing here in California. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. So when we were together last March on Ask a Leader Commissioners, then the concern I was asking Commissioner Kutagawa about the, the hatred directed to Asian American Pacific Islanders. And on this day, there is a commemoration of Juneteenth, which is another acknowledgement of, of a very complicated past, a, a very complicated history and a, a complicated present day. And so I don't know if there's in summary, I, I would just like to give each of you a chance to talk about whether to comment on how we come together in California to acknowledge those developments in our body politic. Commissioner Kutugawa, I'll defer to you first. <laughs> well, I guess, you know, I, Claudia, I'm going to say that, you know, redistricting is a, is a really interesting kind of exercise and one that I think is, is not fully appreciated and is not one that is fully understood either. And I think, as I think about what it serves, you know, one of the things that I really have come to appreciate about the work that we're doing is that it is an opportunity for all Californians to really have a say, to be able to also, um, you know, be, be able to really tell us about their communities and why their interests of those communities should be together with within one district or with with other like-minded city county regions and as i think about just i would just say just generally lots of things that are happening whether it's it's the continuation of of unfortunately i mean even yesterday i i just heard of a of a 94 year old 
woman who was stabbed in San Francisco, um, Asian woman who was stabbed in San Francisco. I mean, these, these incidences keep happening. And at the same time, federally, Juneteenth has been uh, recognized, but as we've been reminded, I think, and, and rightly so, you know, it's not like Juneteenth just came about all of a sudden. I mean, these are the commemorations and the remembrances of communities that continue to, to really um, uh, struggle. And, and also it's important to remember the histories. And I think, um, you know, in some ways it, it, it may seem like a stretch, but I think redistricting is part of ensuring that the voices of our diverse communities are going to be um, reflected and um, heard and, and honored, to be honest. So I think that's how I'm, how I would connect redistricting to the, mm -hmm. you know, to, to all that's happening. Yeah, thank you, um, Commissioner Kutagawa. Um, one of the things that I find is helpful is that I've noticed in our public input meetings we've had so far that there were um, several voices that did call in and make reference to the rising hate for AAPI and how they wanted to ensure that districts reflected um, were, were cre created in a way that gives you know, everyone a voice and an opportunity to be represented. For me, those are just glimmers of hope. These are just individual voices and this is good. And, and yes, that we've not solved it yet. We have a troubled historic past and a troubled current reality that's going on. And, and with even the recent day that just was um, the, the Juneteenth, now uh, federal holiday, um, that that's, and I think we're thinking of it as a day of rest. And for me as a commissioner, particularly being black American female, um, I look at it and I thought, okay, I, I appreciate the gesture, but there are so many other pieces that still, I think 402 years later needs to, from a, a culture standpoint, from a race standpoint, um, it feels like um, it is a gesture that sometimes could also feel hollow when we are still looking at, um, you know, still wanting and desiring of unrestricted voting rights. And, you know, there's so many other peace parts that we still do. So Claudia, we could get into a whole session about that. So I wanna say on one hand, uh, thank you. I'm glad that we are bringing attention to the rising hate and we have voices that are speaking out against it. And now it just is time for us as a state and a nation for us to come together and put some real teeth behind where we say our heart is and what our recognition of past. Let's see what that looks like and how do we begin to dismantle some of our past and bring it um, so that following along the lines of redistricting where all Californians can equally participate, we want that same level of equal participation in every area of our government. Thank you so much for that, Commissioner Turner, that with your responsibilities, the two of you are carrying out, you're bringing the civil community from the past gesture and into practice, as what I think I'm hearing. And I thank you for giving me extra time to acknowledge that tall order that needs all of our attention. Thank you so much for being on Ask a Leader today. Thank you for your time and it's, for your service. It's been a Thank pleasure you. being here again. Thank you for having us. Thank you. My guests were California Citizens Redistricting Commissioners Linda Akuragawa of Huntington Beach and Trina Turner from Stockton. 
wedrawthelines.org is where you can find out all the meetings, meeting agendas, schedules, and how to contribute. Thank you again, ladies. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you. We'll be right back with my second installment of Inside the 45th with David Ehrlich. Welcome back to the show. My name is David Ehrlich, and I'm Inside the 45th. Well, welcome to uh, Inside the 45th segment of Ask a Leader, David Ehrlich. It's a pleasure to have you. He's coming today, listeners, from his home in Irvine. He is an Irvine resident, an insurance company manager, and a member of Irvine Watchdog that's been represented several times on this show. So let's talk about you. You've been a constituent of this area for some time. Talk about... What are kind of federal pressing issues that affect you as a voter? First of all, thank you for having me. It's really nice to be here. I think things that affect me as a voter at the federal level that I look at really are the most pressing thing to me right now is just the the equal treatment of all people. And I think to me, that's the most important. That's the most important topic out there. Well, that's a very complicated it's a seemingly simple reference, equal treatment. What does it mean to you? You know, I think there's been a lot of discussion, I think, in the last year or so. And well, I shouldn't just say the last year or so. Really longer than that, I think that the murder of George Floyd really brought a lot of different things to light, both in the workplace and just in society in terms of the way that people are perceived, the way people are treated. And I think even though in America, we've, we've come a really long way in terms of equality, I think there's still a lot of folks that, you know, we all, we all share space with that feel disenfranchised and don't feel like they're treated equally. And for me, some things, you know, really probably mainly in the workplace, but just talking to people that I've known for years and some of the things that they've gone through that I never really thought that much about. And so to me, it's not so much that everything on the ballot, I guess, is related to these topics. But I guess when I look at the federal government, I feel like that's really what we need to focus on is, you know, making sure that people are treated fairly, people are treated equally. I look, I guess, locally and federally at our criminal justice system, and I see how it seems to be slanted in the favor of folks that have money and have resources. And I I think that's unfair. I look at folks that are um, maybe have substance abuse issues that are incarcerated for lengthy periods of time. They don't gain any skills necessarily when they're incarcerated, they come out and they don't have the ability to, you know, to contribute to society and they end up falling right back into the habits they were in before because they don't have any resources. And it's interesting for me because I was raised in a household that supported the death penalty and felt that, yes, um, your lot in life is what you make of it. And I I suppose that I had that mindset for probably a long time, but I started trying to think inward a little bit more. And I feel like it's not fair to put it on all individuals that I think that there is an obligation that society has to try to help its fellow citizens. And it's not just you're either lucky or you're not, and you have to figure out your own way. I think that we have an obligation to try to bring our brothers and sisters up and not just um, 
thumb our noses at people and, and lock them up if we don't think that they're contributing members of society. David, I think it's really interesting that you have changed over time from how you were raised with that disposition toward the death penalty and you're re-examining over time the criminal justice system. To what do you attribute that reconsideration? I think, you know, I'm not an attorney by trade, but one of the things that I pay a lot of attention to in the news are criminal trials. I've spent probably quite a bit of my own personal time just doing some research and reading court decisions and just various things about cases. And I just think it, it just seems unfair. I mean, it's not that I have sympathy for people that commit violent crimes. I mean, I, I think that that's a bad thing and I'm not trying to make excuses for that. I guess I look at the way I was raised, you know, you, you mentioned earlier that I've lived in Irvine and I, I have, I have lived in Irvine for a very long time and I had a very blessed childhood. I grew up in a city that was planned, had great schools, was really safe. I didn't really have to worry about, I guess, bad things happening, bad things happening to me. Like some people do that maybe live in more urban areas that aren't quite as sheltered, I guess, as Irvine was at that time. And so I feel like for me, if I was to go down the wrong path, it would have been my own choice. It wouldn't have been necessarily a product of my environment. And I think some people don't have the same, I guess they don't have those same blessings that I had, you know, maybe living in an area that's not considered as safe, have parents that both work full time. And so they're kind of left on their own. And I'm not criticizing the parents. I think it's just reality for some people. You know, and I, I was lucky to have really nice friends growing up. And I think, you know, some people don't. And you're the product of your environment. And I feel like if we don't give people the tools to improve or to succeed, it's kind of, it's sort of all of our fault, I guess. I feel like it's, it's all of our responsibility on some level. And yes, there's definitely personal responsibility that we all have to act right and do the right thing. But I just feel like at the same time, there are people that don't have the same advantages that maybe that I've had or some of the listeners have had. And I think we have to consider how we can help those people as well, because it's really to everybody's benefit. So David, one reference I heard you make was to citizens in your district. And I just want to know, some, there are a lot of foreign born that with or without documentation that are not citizens. So I don't know if those criminal justice due process considerations that you are concerned about are equally applied if that those protections apply to others than citizens? I feel like if you're here, um, you know, I guess it, it, immigration's a, that's a, I could probably go on about that for a long time. I have mixed feelings about immigration, but in terms of the question that you're asking me. Well, I mean, there's documented non-citizens, correct? I, that, that is true. So, I mean, that's why I'm always listening for that distinction being made. And sometimes it's made casually and sometimes it's very intentionally made. So I, that's, I just wanted to know if you acknowledge that there are, there are many foreign born that are not yet citizens. But I do, I do understand that, yes. So I think that in terms of you know, foreign born folks that aren't citizens, I think they should be entitled to this, the same protections and the same, you know, the same benefits as the rest of us for the most part. I mean, I understand there's a differing point of view there that we shouldn't be spending our money on people that aren't citizens, I guess. And I understand the feeling there. 
But on the other hand, I feel like if we don't provide resources to people, we put them in a position where they're, they're not going to succeed. They're not going to contribute to our society. They're more likely to turn to other means to make a living that might not be legal. I mean, I don't have any empirical data to back that statement up. I'm just thinking logically the way I think, I guess. But I, I do think that we need to, I think that's sort of part of treating people equally. I mean, they're human. Um, whether they're citizens or not, that's something, I guess, that the government decides and puts on a piece of paper. Um, yeah. For those of you who've just joined us, my guest in Inside the 45th is David Ehrlich, Irvine resident, insurance company manager, and member of Irvine Watchdog. So let's talk about your voting profile. And that includes sort of up and down the ballot and just how frequently you're voting. I, I know you have a four-year-old son and I don't know if he's watching you at an early age so that he becomes, if, I, if you are a regular voter, I think as we talked about in background that you're a pretty regular voter, but talk about your voting profile in terms of your frequency and the construction of the ballot, how you participate, David Erdick. I am glad to. So I guess I'll give a little bit of background on this. So. My parents, I remember at a very early age, they voted in every election. And I remember going with them to the voting booth and standing there and they would use that little puncher thing to punch the holes in the ballot. And I was, I was fascinated by the whole process. And I remember learning about it in school and my mom and dad always made a really big deal out of, you know, you, you need to exercise your right to vote. It's, it was clear that it was important to them. So it became important to me as I grew up. So I, I, I don't remember if the voting age was 16 or eight is 16 or 18, but I registered to vote as soon as I was legally allowed to. And I have voted in every election in every County that I've ever lived in, which is mostly orange County I lived in Ventura County briefly. I went to college in San Diego County, but I've registered to vote everywhere that I've lived and I've voted in every election. So that said, I think while I'm a registered Republican and I always have been, I tend not to always vote on party lines. Um, I'm sure there's probably Republicans listening to this that are saying, geez, a lot of the positions that you've uh, you shared here are contrary to what the Republican Party, and, and I acknowledge that. I guess, you know, fiscally, I've always been in line with, I think, what I've always considered the Republican belief is that people should be able to, to make money. And this is a very watered down version of, I guess, the Republican belief, but, or <laughs> the Republican platform, but um, business should be allowed to thrive. We should avoid overtaxing American citizens and people should be allowed to make a living. I understand there's been a lot of variations on kind of where that's gone. But like I said, I don't vote on party lines always, although sometimes I do. You know, I tend to vote based on what I think of the person in terms of how I research that. You know, I read the voting, I read the voting guides, I read, you know, the register various news sources online. I tend to stick with the mainstream ones. Not so much a fan of the, of the other ones, but that's just me. So, and, and what kind of, tell me a little bit more though of what kind of media you are consuming. I mainly stick with mainstream stuff like Fox News, CNN, LA Times, Orange County Register, The Guardian. I don't know if they're mainstream, but I mean, I've looked at some of the non-mainstream ones. I, I'm trying to think of the names like OAN or OEN is one of them. Breitbart's another one. Um, 
you know, I've spent time reading those and I just find it to be, in my opinion, it's almost like a tabloid. And I feel like it's, it's just very, I know that there's the people that support those, those sites say that the mainstream media is very biased. I think all media is biased. I mean, somebody's behind it. We have a free press in America, but I mean, it's not like China or some country where the, the government's controlling all of the messaging, I guess, necessarily. But, um, you know, I mean, these company, these, these media companies are owned by people that have views. And I think it's sort of naive to think that that's not influencing them. So I feel like with the mainstream media, I get the most neutral version of, of what's out there. And I can, I'm left to draw my own conclusions. I mean, certainly, sure, there's a slant on it, but I don't feel like I'm being shoved in one direction or the other. You know, if I look at Breitbart, I definitely feel like I am. So I tend, I tend to avoid those things personally, although certainly I understand that they're there for everyone's consumption and, and, uh, it is good to, I think, look at various things so you don't just have one point of view. So while we're taking up inside the 45th, at this very moment, the California Redistricting Commission is still taking comments from all over the state about the way in which the new state and federal legislative districts are going to be redrawn. So are you involved in any of that process? I have not been involved in any of that process, no, and I don't know a whole lot about it either. Okay, and but you're you're aware the new maps are being drawn this year. Yes, I am okay. aware of that. I have read that, but okay. I don't know much about it. Well, let's talk now about your awareness of the incumbent. Katie Porter was elected in 2018, so she's now she's reelected. She's serving her second term. So, what is your understanding of? her incumbency, what, what she's doing, what is it that interests you about how she's doing her job, David? Or like, Well, I, I feel like with her, she's definitely, I mean, what do I, I guess what I know of her in terms of just what I see and what I hear, um, I know she's a Democrat. I know a lot of my fellow Republicans don't much care for her. I've heard what her. What do they say? I'm mostly going off what I'm reading. It's not that I, not that okay. I've necessarily had a lot of the conversations. I think people, I've heard that she's quote unquote, a crazy liberal. Um, I've heard her referred to as a socialist. Um, mostly things like that. My personal views of her, you know, I don't really know a ton about her. Um, I think that she is, she seems like she's definitely made an effort to engage with her constituency. I mean, in terms of like social media, and just outreach type things. I mean, I get stuff in the mail from her. Um, I don't think I follow her on social media, but I've gotten emails asking for my input on things. I never got anything like, I think Mimi Walters was the person who was there before her. Right, um, she's the predecessor. Yeah, and you know, Mimi Walters, I know she was a Republican. I didn't know a ton about her either. My recollection was that she was somebody that had a lot of money and I know a lot of Republicans supported her. I never, you know, particularly found her to be all that personable or relatable in the way she came across. So I feel like Katie Porter is somebody that I find easier to relate to in terms of just like her style of communication, I guess. You know, I haven't studied her views enough in depth to say whether I agree or disagree with, with them. I'm, you know, generally... I think socially, 
she seems very liberal, which I am as well. So I suppose I probably aligned with her there. Um, fiscally, I'm not really sure what her positions are. So I guess I probably shouldn't comment on that. Okay. And so let's say you have a, a one-on-one forum with her. You have an audience of, of one with each other. And what would it be, what would be the most compelling things she could represent you in Congress in about? Good question. And we'll make I, we'll make that the last question, unless that you still had a, like a closing oh, no, comment. I'm good. I think for I think for me, really, I, I guess going back to kind of what I said at the beginning, I feel like the most pressing issue I see, I, I guess the best, if I'm putting a bow on it, is human rights. I mean, I understand that she's one person, but I feel like that if I look at this country and I look at what I perceive the problems to be. I feel like a lot of it's based in, in human rights and that I understand there's a lot of other issues going on, but ultimately I feel like it starts with the way we treat people, the way we treat each other, um, the way that we contribute to society. And I feel like if Miss Porter or whoever else is in that position at some point is able to make progress in you know, providing resources to the community for people to succeed, um, I guess giving people the helping people get the tools to succeed and, and ensuring that people are treated equally, you know, by law enforcement, by the courts. I think those are all things that I see as sort of a foundation for our society. So I think for me, that's what I would say. Um, I'm not really that concerned about, I mean, I feel like I pay too much in taxes, but I don't have a specific, I don't have a specific ask there, but you know, Hey, if there's a way that, perhaps that could be uh, trimmed down a bit. I, I wouldn't complain. So I, I asked you about what media you're consuming, but how do you weed through the candidates that are on your ballot, midterm or general election or primary? Just how, what, how do you get informed about candidates? I generally go on their websites and I Google them a lot. I do, st- I do search engine type searches where I'll find different things that, you know, pop up about them, both their own, usually their own campaign info, or maybe if they've been in private industry, something about them there. And then also the people that are criticizing them. So I can sort of get a, an idea of both sides. Um, you know, I, I don't know, getting, a, get, getting information from a campaign advertisement, I don't really think that tells me much. Do you ever go to in-person appearances? I have never pre-pandemic. No, okay, okay. No, I never have. I'll, I'll be interested. I'll, that's going to be a question I think I'll put to many of the inside the forty-fifth contributors. Well, David, this has been really a treat to have you be one of the new persons in my new segment, and I thank you so much for your time on Inside the Forty-fifth. Thanks so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Thank you. My guest was David Ehrlich. He's a, a long-term resident of Ryan in Orange County. He is a manager of 150 people at insurance company locally, and he is a member of the Irvine Watchdog, rendering huge services, for which I'll thank him now, to residents of Irvine. Thanks again. Same with me, Claudia. Thank you so much. Okay, thanks a lot. Take care. Well, that's my wrap. If you missed any portion of this or any other show, you can always go to my website, askaleader.com. Talk with you next week. 
Thank you for listening, everyone. <laughs>